Hey, 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 this is NFL Hall of Famer Ray Lewis. I'm excited to announce my new podcast, Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis Podcast. I'll be talking with friends, family members, old teammates, athletes, celebrities, moguls, and guess what? I'll be talking to you. Listen, this is all in the search for everyday greatness. So I'm asking you to come along with me on this ride. Download new episodes of Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on podcastone.com. It's not what you have. It's what's inside of you that actually inspires greatness. Welcome back PFF NFL podcast. It is season preview time. So we will continue this time going to the AFC North. Sam, how you doing? Doing good, Steve. How about you? I see your, uh, your test driving the new intros. How, the, how are they working for you? Yeah, I'm trying new ones. I got yeah. sick of welcome in. I got sick of it. <laughs> it felt contrived. So we're, I'm doing welcome back and just like, just start talking. Um, let us know what you think. Season nine. It's a whole new season of intros. Yeah, I mean, it's risky. I don't know if you can just bail from your shtick like that. Well, we'll see. I might have to bring it back. I can always revert back. Like, come crawling back to your your intro. Like Hulk Hogan went back to his red and yellow after, you know, going to the black and white for a little bit. Yeah. You can always revert back. It was an equally bad idea. No, no. He was good. Good in black and white. It's good. Made some money. Good heel for a while. But then you just come back, you know, for the kids. And I'll come back for the kids if I need to. Anyway, uh, we, we previewed the AFC East for like six and a half hours yeah. earlier in the week. So go check that out. We won't be as lengthy in this one. We're going to be short and concise, but really thorough, really thorough going through each team. So let's do it. It's an AFC North preview. Let's start with AFC North champion Baltimore Ravens. The biggest question, of course, can the Ravens repeat? Can they go 14 and two, get the number one seed again? Can they win a playoff game? Okay, there's many questions. What are we looking at for the Ravens this year, Sam? Um, <clears throat> I'm kind of curious to see. I mean, Lamar Jackson is obviously one of the most fascinating players in the NFL, one of the most dynamic and entertaining players in the NFL. So I'm kind of curious, where does he land, right? The, the leap he took last season was so spectacular. Obviously went from you know nothing like that to MVP in the space of one offseason, but I, I don't know what he's going to be, right? I think there's a lot that happened last year that would say, you know, it was so good, you expect some kind of regression. But there's a lot of areas where, like, he didn't get that spectacular in, right? He jumped into a lot of passing, uh, way, a lot of passing measurements, a lot of passing statistics, a lot of passing um, aspects. He sort of jumped from, you know, way off the bottom, particularly accuracy, right? Jump from like way off the bottom of the league in his own little anomaly to, you know, middle of the pack somewhere, which means in theory, there's like all that space between middle of the pack and like the top end that he could potentially get better into, right? If he takes another step forward, alternatively, like he was so insane that 
he may regress back um, a little bit across the board. So generally, I'm kind of interested in this concept of does he take a step back? Does he take a step back in some categories, but overall ends up at the same kind of level? So he's not like an MVP again next year, but he's still the same Lamar. Does he get even better and he breaks the league along with Patrick Mahomes? I, you know, Where does this land? Yeah, it, it's a fascinating one to look at. Uh, last year, Jackson ends up number five in PFF grades, including the playoffs, 90.1, 82.5 passing grades. So yes, that's well up from where he was as a rookie. Uh, up from where we where he was probably expectation-wise. As a rookie, we graded him at 56. Um, and that includes the run game because he had so many fumbles. that You know, bad fumbles that were legit right. his fault. It's not like, here's a missed handoff. Is it on the running back? Is it him? You know, that type of stuff. Legit fumble issues, 23 fumble grade, because um, we grade those things uh, as a rookie. So that was much improved uh, last season. Passing, obviously. Rushing, he was, you know, dynamic. And the Ravens, as we've said many times, have done a really nice job of building around that skill set. I think what has to regress is that touchdown rate of 9%. Right. That just never, that never happens. He had, during the regular season, 36 touchdowns, and they, he only threw the ball 401 times. So just in attempts last year, ranked 26th. 26th in attempts, first in touchdowns. So he could get way better as a quarterback, and just that is going to regress a little bit. But isn't that isn't that the sort of statistic that you think may well be artificially inflated because of what he is, right? This idea of, like at Louisville, you know, the threat he is with the ball in his hands as a rusher, and a, you know, once he breaks the pocket and all those kinds of things, it opens up these easier pass attempts, right? It it, it means that he has a an easier time of passing the ball than other quarterbacks because of what that opens up. Does it also open up? touchdowns right does it mean that he's got more wide open deep shots to guys that don't have secondary to deal with anymore and actually because of the threat that he is a a, a runner um like he's going to have a career where his touchdown rate is probably higher than most quarterbacks yeah i mean there's definitely something to that i think we've we've mentioned quite a bit that there is um, a lot of his skill set that involves uh, creating easier throws making it difficult for the defense and I think the other thing that maybe highlights that too, we're looking at just like the supporting cast and all that stuff. The offensive line was really good. Again, can you separate the fact that the offensive line is run blocking really well? How much of that is Lamar? I mean, there's definitely some dependency there. The offensive line's being protected in pass protection because people are worried about Lamar breaking contain. So maybe he elevates the old line a little bit certainly gives the running backs an opportunity of when we put our running back rankings out there and I put them ninth, a lot of people were like, Oh, they broke the record for the most uh, rushing yards and all that. That was the only negative feedback I got because running backs. Um, but yeah, obviously Mark Ingram and Gus Edwards and those guys are benefiting. You know, now they have JK Dobbins in the mix benefiting from the fact that defenses have to account for from Lamar favorable box counts plus the offensive line. But the point I wanted to make was the receiving core on paper is not great um, but you know it worked in this system they, they definitely focused more on the tight ends last year um, they had Nick Boyle and Mark Andrews and Hayden Hurst Hurst is gone but they had three tight ends with at least 30 catches last year Marquise Brown looked like a really nice deep threat as a first rounder they moved him around a little bit to um, stretch the defense vertically but he was also banged up after a couple uh, you know deep catches and everything so um, I will say, I just think that they've got a lot of speed 
on offense, even though the name value, I think, at receiver is not great. The, uh, the story is this week about Marquise Brown. He's put on a ton of muscle. Um, he's put on 23 pounds of muscle to get himself to within 100 pounds of how much you weigh. How about that? <laughs> How about that? You always have to relate everything to me, Sam. I just think, I mean, the guy's put on 23 pounds of muscle and he's still only within 100 pounds of where you are. I, I think, think some people, it's usually running backs. I saw somebody did like a, like a little study on like the offseason 20 right. or 15. I got bulked up this offseason well, and there's like, obviously there's no correlation so, with performance. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody was making the point that like if that's, if that's actually what's happened, it would be one of the largest sort of percentage body weight growths of any player ever you know what i mean like you want to hear dude, what i did one year yeah oh yeah because he was coming from like 150 right or right he already played at 157 right now so a that's that's interesting in and of itself right just such a huge leap um is is going to be fascinating to watch but but the other thing that's sort of left out to me is is less that it's more that like 157 at that size is insane. Like he's five yeah. nine. It's not like he's five six or anything, right? Like one one fifty seven at five nine is really light. Like that's almost trying to stay lean. So he should have been able to get the one seventy without even thinking about it. One eighty. I mean, that's obviously the next ten pounds is harder than the first ten. But it's like one eighty at that size should not be a problem, right? Yeah, that's really small, uh, but. You know he's he's a speed guy, so we'll see. Sometimes bulking yeah. up. They apparently great. so. The, I mean, this is uh, this is we've it's it's back, Steve. We've reached the the off season crazy report stage of like, oh, so hey, you, look, so look, you asking for the people for right. Uh, for like, look what uh, yeah. look what these guys have been doing. You know, the LASIK eye surgery, and this guy's using this, and so Marquise <laughs> Brown, like they've they've been on this regimen of hey, put on twenty three pounds of muscle but they sent him a GPS to make sure that he was staying fast while he was putting on the muscle. It's like, keep, keep adding it, but we're going to monitor your GPS time to make sure you're not losing some speed while you get on the 23 pounds. My, uh, my first off season after college, I was trying to bulk up. I was very skinny throughout high school and high, you know, college. I bulked up a little bit, but you know, I needed to put weight on before my first, first year of pro ball. And according to our numbers, I gained 23 pounds during an off season, I think 18 of which was muscle. So okay. it was 18 pounds of muscle and five pounds of fat one off season. Well, he did that and, except uh, he started off at half your size. Yeah. But is it all muscle though? We don't know. It's we supposedly. Don't know right I mean, I know I, I put it all, I, but I was like, you know, five, five pounds of that was fat. So. I right. I mean, when you start off at five, nine, one fifty-seven, I don't think you're carrying a lot of fat. Probably. Probably. I don't need, as it happens, I don't think I need the GPS to know that I've lost some speed over this off season. Like I was just getting it back from the daily, daily basketball sessions at the Y. Pretty sure it's all gone again. I miss, I miss playing hoops all the time. Yeah. Uh, so obviously Lamar is a big factor. They add in JK Dobbins for all that we talk about. Hey, running backs are overrated and the Ravens have Gus Edwards undrafted free agent averaging five yards a pop the last couple of years. Mark Ingram averaging five yards a pop. Can J, like, is J.K. Dobbins worth? Is he going to be five and a half yards a pop? You know, he's a very good running back. He's he's good. He's scheme uh, diverse. I think he could do a lot of nice things. He could probably catch the ball a little bit better than some of those other guys. But I think that's an interesting one. You know, taking him in the second round and then losing Marshall Yonda yeah. from that offensive line. Left tackle Ronnie Stanley has become one of the league's best. Orlando Brown at right tackle has become one of the league's best. But on the interior, they had. 
Yonda so they could say, okay, three-fifths of our line is really, really good. Bradley Bozeman, okay. Matt Skura at center, okay. But right guard's going to be that massive question mark, you know, losing a Hall of Famer. Marshall Yonda, not many people know that name. Well, suddenly the entire interior of that line is – you know, a question, right? It, it's Yanda on his own can kind of sh- almost shore up an entire interior. You know, the one spot is great. You can kind of always swing, always turn left with the center and, and help the, at the left guard. Now, like all three of those guys are, you know, average at best, maybe below average to poor, depending on where we land there. That suddenly becomes a question. I think they're going to be helped out by the fact that the offense helps out that, that offensive line across the board, whether it's, you know, helping out Ronnie Stanley takes him from being really good to looking like off the charts insane in terms of his numbers, but it helps out everybody. Um, so that, I mean, that's the thing, right? They suddenly have to deal with an offensive line that could potentially have a weakness in it. The other thing I'm kind of interested in generally is, you know, this notion that the longer you run something in the NFL, the more defenses figure it out and ultimately neutralize it, right? Uh, you know, every, every time we, I don't know if it's just a, you know, we think about these run-heavy systems or quarterbacks that are run-heavy, and it only comes up when it's those types of players, right? When you're doing something with a quarterback that's different and run-heavy, it's something that gets figured out. But when it's just like you invented the West Coast offense and you changed the game, like that didn't get figured out. Like we weren't expect, we weren't waiting for defenses to, you know, crush that system and render it useless. That was just an, an evolution of the NFL. So. Has this system, because the quarterback is as talented as Lamar Jackson, evolved the NFL and would it continue to be as destructive? Or is it more like it was when you had a flawed quarterback who could you know, do some useful things in the run game but was ultimately not a good enough passer or was a sufficiently flawed passer that defenses were able to work out how to neutralize those systems, right? Back with those right. 49ers teams or the Bills teams with Tyra Taylor doing some stuff. You know, We've seen teams do similar things like this before, but the quarterback was flawed enough that defense is ultimately caught up and shut it down. Yeah. I, I think my question about this system is more, we saw, we saw so many games where they were just efficient from start to finish. Like you don't, I'm just looking at Lamar's stat lines. Some of his stat lines are ridiculous. I like put the grades aside for a minute. The fact that he had a game where he was 15 for 17 with three touchdowns, he was 17 for 20 for 324 with five touchdowns in week one mm-hmm. against Miami, which, by the way, I think people just need to go back and watch that game and say, okay, Miami did what we're doing. They spend the whole offseason thinking about this. What are we going to do? Oh, we'll just stop the run. We'll just put eight, nine in the box. And then Lamar comes out throwing the ball over their head yeah. and just with a great feel from the pocket, five touchdowns, 300-plus yards, only three incompletions. He had the Monday night football game against the Rams, 15 for 20, five touchdowns. Like, those games are – this is what I'm talking about with the touchdown percentage. That's that, those are that's 13 touchdowns across three games with 57 attempts. Like that type of stuff is really difficult to sustain. But that stuff worked because the run game worked early, the pass game worked early. They got up 14 nothing. They got up 21 nothing. Like they just got up, and then they didn't have to pass the ball much. The games where obviously he struggled a little bit. His worst game was against Kansas City in Week Three. People forget this one a little bit because it would have been way worse if he didn't have two really lucky completions in there, but he was 22 for 43, uh, 267, which doesn't look crazy on the surface, but a 35 grade uh, because about 60 of those yards were like, you know, prayers or passes that should have been picked. 
Um, so when he had to drop back 43 times, there's that game. There's the divisional game against Tennessee, which was one of his worst games when he had to drop back 59 times. There weren't many of these games, but you have to be able to win every which way in the NFL. So when the, when the ball is in his hands more, here's the point I want to make. Lamar's six highest graded games, he didn't throw the ball more than 24 times. Those right. were his six highest grades, um, which is fine because they were so good on those pass, on those plays that he didn't have to. But to me, that's the, the evolution of the offense. Will teams be able to at least slow them down? Plus, you lose a little bit of fourth, fourth down luck that they had. I mean, they were so efficient on fourth down. That has to regress a little bit, too. So I think game flow-wise, they'll be a little bit more on Lamar's plate. Again, nothing's, nothing's to say that he can't do it, but it's, those are the questions I think we'll be looking to have answered this year. I got that dying thing going on that you had. <laughs> the worst, right? Yeah. You try to hide it a little bit, and then it's, it's got you. I can't, well, I tried to, you know, I felt it before. I was trying to get rid of it, and then it just came back with a vengeance. Take a break. Take a break if you need yeah. to. Yeah. You're on uh, call today, too. You're like, you're waiting for a repair guy, right? Yeah, there's a guy, there's a guy coming to replace a part in the grill that arrived broken out of the box. So at some point, we may need to, to run and let him in. I might be do his thing. Monologue. Um, I mean, so the, that system is getting talked about as, you know, a little bit like the run and shoots flaw was that they couldn't grind out the clock and win games where they were up. You know, they couldn't run out the, the, the clock and eat some time. The, yep. the, the flaw to this system is people saying, well, what happens when they get down in a hurry? You know, and you've got a two touchdown deficit. Can you, can you air it out and, and come back, right? And the, the Titans game, they got buried in a hole early. Lamar had to become this passing quarterback and it didn't go that well. So that's now like the flaw to this system. I mean, the well, they first... also don't. It goes back to the receiver personnel too, right? Yeah, like they sure. have some really good speed to work off play action and stretch the field. But they, you're not going to drop back 50 times with Marquise Brown, Miles Boykin, right? Willie Sneed, Chris Moore, Devin uh, Duvernay. Like those guys aren't really built for that either. But I would say first, I don't think he looked that bad in the playoff game when he had to. True. When he had to become this pass-heavy quarterback, obviously he made some mistakes. There were some bad plays in there, um, and it didn't. He didn't get it done. But I didn't think he looked that bad, given how ugly that situation got. And then the other thing is a, a lot like the run and shoot, right? I don't like for a start. How when you have this system, like how many times does that become a problem? Like this offense was wiping people off the face of the earth in almost every single game, right? The right. fact that you can't. Like, I don't think you're ever, it's very, very rare to have a sort of a system that's good for all seasons, good for all weather. Um, all, usually there's like one specific thing that the system is not great at, right? But like, this is so good across the board that for this one game where it doesn't go that way, of course you're going to have problems. If for no other reason, then you never face that situation usually, right? So I think that's part of it. But then the other thing is, I honestly don't know that you need to do that, right? And, you know, we saw from Mahomes and the Chiefs against the Texans, like if you get down in a hurry, there's a lot of ball game left, right? There's a lot of time left to do what you do. Now the the Chiefs are, they use less clocking doing it, but I think the Ravens could easily stick to the game plan, even in the face of a pretty heavy deficit and just, and still do the same thing. So overall, I, I don't think there's this great flaw to this offense that a lot of people seem to want to put on it. Let's just remember how efficient they were running the football. 
EPA of 0.118, which, you know, doesn't mean much to people, but that's, you know, how many, essentially, how many points, how, how much closer did you get to scoring per play? 0.11 is really high for running the ball. By far the number one uh, EPA in the league on rushing plays. That would rank seventh among passing offenses. You know, so that type of stuff just doesn't happen. We sit here railing against the running game left and right on this show, and the Ravens were so efficient that they would rank seventh in efficiency passing the ball. Their passing efficiency, EPA-wise, was also number one by far, 0.256, again, which shows just how uh, more you gain generally in the passing game versus the running game, uh, unless you do have a Ravens-like offense. So on one hand, okay, that's probably difficult and unsustainable, but again, it comes down to it wasn't, it wasn't your traditional run game. It wasn't like, hey, the offensive line crushed it and you had a great back and you had Lamar is the X factor with all that stuff. They ran for over almost 3,300 yards last year at 5.9 per carry, which includes scramble, which includes Lamar's scrambles and all that stuff, but even just on design runs, 2,800 yards. So, yeah, there'll be a lot to look at there among the many storylines in the NFL. Let's go to the defense where we've talked about this quite a bit too on the show. Defensively, they're doing things differently as well uh they they were one of the teams that built from back to forward back to front they've got one of our top secondaries did i give them number one i gave them number one i gave them the number one secondary in the nfl we debated internally between them and the chargers uh we'll talk about them in a second but the ravens have embraced the idea i think the way they've built their team that we're going to cover extremely well mix up coverages. We're going to scheme up pressure. They don't have a whole bunch of guys that win one-on-ones up front, but Oh, by the way, they've also added Calais Campbell who using our war metric has been the most valuable edge defender edge slide. He plays edge plays interior, but the most valuable edge over the last two years um, in our top run defender and a very good pass rusher. So they might be even better defensively. A couple rookie linebackers in there. What do you think of their defense? I think this defense has a chance to be one of those special defenses this year. You know, 2017 Jags, the the Seahawks had a run, the Broncos had a run. I think this defense... You think they're that good? I think they could be. I think it's got a chance to get into that groove. Um, you know, they, they lost Michael Pierce, who was, their, who was one of their two. It's such a fascinating way they've built this thing, right? Because they have these two fire hydrant run defense guys in the middle with Brandon Williams and Michael Pierce. And then everything else has been sort of just positionless, roving coverage guys that can rush the passer and scheme up some pressure. Um, they lost Michael Pierce, but they replaced him with Calais Campbell, who can do a hell of a lot more than just occupy that spot, but I think can also occupy that spot. Um, like Calais Campbell is going to go back to being an interior guy more than an edge player. Even there, like his last year in Arizona was in that type of alignment inside he was the second best interior player in the NFL that year um, behind Aaron Donald. I, I think he can be as good as that still. Then they, they add a guy like Patrick Queen in the draft, speed at the linebacker, some instincts. I, I just think everything is, is coming together for this group to be truly, truly phenomenal. Plus the fact that schematically, I think what they're doing is really smart and really effective. Yeah, here's how uh, unique they were again last year. They bring in Earl Thomas, and you know we sometimes when you're projecting players, you only know what you've seen. And all we saw from Earl Thomas from 2010 through 18 was all oh, center fielder. 
you know, he plays deep, he plays center field, and he plays center field at as high of a, le- a level as, as any safety in recent memory since Ed Reed. And they get him, and all of a sudden he's a box player. And he's roaming around, and he's near the line of scrimmage, and he blitzes 57 times. He had never blitzed more than 26 times, and he literally only blitzed like a handful of times most of his career, most of his seasons in his career. So all of a sudden, Earl Thomas is using his athleticism in and around the line of scrimmage. They get Chuck Clark, another safety. You know, if you have a linebacker that blitzes over 100 times, it's like, all right, you're using him a lot yeah. as, as a blitz threat. Chuck Clark as a safety blitzed over 100 times, 106. They blitzed over 50% of passing plays in Baltimore last year, by far the highest percentage in the league. So they said, we don't have a whole bunch of one-on-one pass rushers up front. Their top guys, Matthew Judon, he ended up with a ton of pressures. He was like our classic, hey, you know, he's got a lot of pressures. He even has sacks, but he's, he's got a 78 pass rush grade. That's good. It's not great during the regular season. Um, and that was by far the best on the team. So they don't have guys that are truly winning one-on-ones. They're scheming up the pressure up front. They're moving people all over the defense. And, you know, to your point about Calais Campbell, adding him as a guy who lines up in multiple positions up front. Derek Wolf has a little bit of that ability. He's there. Pernell McPhee has a little bit of that. Justin Matabuike, who they drafted in third round, has some of that. So they're moving more into even the front seven. Well, those guys around potentially if they want to. Not just that, but I think they've shifted the dynamic a little bit, right? <clears throat> Before it was sort of these two fire hydrants that don't move in the middle, and then we'll scheme the pressure from around. the blitz, from yeah. the edge. We'll scheme that, right? Now, all of a sudden, those interior guys are actually a threat to, to, make, to generate some pressure as well. Calais Campbell right. can rush the passer up the middle. Derek Wolf can rush the passer up the middle. Like He's got seasons um, with 60 pressures on his resume right those two guys like if they come in and Derek Wolf and Calais Campbell combine for like 80 total pressures between the two of them that completely changes the dynamic from what you were getting with Michael Pearson and Brandon Williams now you've got not only have you got to worry about all this pressure getting schemed all over the place but you actually have to deal with just stopping the middle um, as well so I think that that actually shifts how the whole defense works it also looked last year because they, they did not have a great linebackers. Um, it did look last year like if we were if we were trying to have takeaways from the team, it'd be like, wait, are they de-emphasizing the linebacker position? Um, they didn't, you know, LJ Fort played a little bit, Josh Bynes played a little bit. They didn't have a linebacker play as my, uh, more than 500 snaps during the regular season. Uh, Patrick Onwasur, uh, so. It's a whole new group with Patrick Queen, who you mentioned in the first round, uh, Malik Harrison coming in. So I don't think they de-emphasized it. They just didn't have great talent there. But that's why they were using Chuck Clark and using Earl Thomas and different guys in the box. Last season, Brandon Williams and Michael Pierce combined for 29 total pressures. Um, And it's it's not like they were just designated nose tackles and they weren't on the field for passing situations. That's 29 total pressures on over 600... Yeah, on over that's four 600, games for Right, on over 600 passing snaps combined, pass rushing snaps. So, like, if, you, if that goes from 29 to, like, 80-plus between Calais and Derek Wolf, it's a totally different ballgame. It is. So, so, it is, you know, it's scarier that they can put some pressure up front. But, again, I want to point back to the secondary that we ranked number one. Marlon Humphrey on the outside, a guy who has the number three grade just in single coverage when targeted over the last couple of years. It's him, Stephon Gilmore, and Casey Hayward. Humphreys, one of the better young corners. 
Marcus Peters, who they bring in for almost nothing. That's the thing, too. They bring in Marcus Peters and Earl Thomas. I mean, they're just bringing, uh, you know, star-level type of players, uh, you know, and just in, in smart moves. Uh, Marcus Peters comes in. He's more of the playmaker type. So, you know, you, you've got turnover potential with him. You bring in Earl. Uh, we mentioned Chuck Clark as more of the strong safety in the box type of guy. Jimmy Smith is still worth bringing back as they did as a number four corner just to see when he's healthy. He's a pretty good outside player. And then Tavon Young, a solid slot. So I, I think their depth and their high end talent gives them the best secondary in the NFL. And uh, uh, sleeper that PFF loved in the draft, Geno Stone in the seventh round. He oh, there you catch go. On and make some plays. So, uh, love where the Ravens are going. I think all that said, we feel good about their roster, good about where they are. What do you, where are you viewing them this season? Can they, can they win 14 games again, duplicate things, get that all important now number one seed because there's only one of them? Uh, yeah, I think they can. I mean, <clears throat> the Ravens, I think to me, are still one of the, whatever the top tier is, you know, the way you like to rank quarterbacks, you tier them. Mm-hmm. I think the Ravens are in that top tier of teams along with, um, you know, the Chiefs basically because of Mahomes and little else. Um, the, the Ravens are right up there with the, the Saints. I think there's this sort of clear class of the NFL, the Ravens, the Saints, the Chiefs, and probably the 49ers again from last year. All right. I think that's fair. Yeah, I expect a little bit of regression from the Ravens, uh, the fourth down stuff, Lamar's stats, the passing game stats. Um, but I think the defense might be able to make up for some of that as well as you were, as you were mentioning. So let's move on to our hometown Cincinnati Bengals moving through the AFC North here. Don't forget AFC East podcast. I think here's my take on that, Sam, whether you're an AFC East fan or not of those four teams, we just talk about so much stuff. It's worth it for everybody. So don't let the title skew things. Just listen to all of our work because it's all incredible. That's my point. Hmm. So go listen to the AFC East pod as well. Well, let's get to the Bengals. I think they're a team. Obviously, I, I don't think many people expected them to have. Did we expect them to be that bad last year? No. Not that bad, right? No. I mean, everything kind of fell to pieces for them last year. Everybody expected the Dolphins to yeah. be the clear favorite <clears throat> for the number one overall pick. When you looked at the Bengals, it was like, okay, the offensive line's a disaster. Uh, that's that held true, and but they still had AJ Green. We expected him to be back at some point. That never happened. Jonah Williams missed the entire season, so some bad stuff happened. Plus, the defense hasn't been good for a few years. I think the Bengals have a good chance to bounce back here because the opposite. Because AJ Green should be back this year. They had some high draft picks. Obviously, Joe Burrow's in the mix, and they've added a lot on the defensive side. What's your overall take on the Bengals heading into 2020? If Joe Burrow is as good as he was last year and he looks like he could be as a prospect, like the Bengals, I don't want to say lucking into the number one overall pick because, you know, they earned it with how bad they were. But like them, all those things going badly and, you know, Miami winning those couple of games to take them out of that number one overall spot. Like Cincinnati coming out of last season with Joe Burrow could be a virtual miracle for this franchise, right? They were not supposed to be getting that last year they were supposed to be in this rebuilding project new head coach comes in you know we're going to have to find a quarterback at some point but we were not in a position to be shooting for you know one of the best quarterback prospects to come along in however long so that's kind of my big takeaway from last season but the other thing was you know how much really just fell apart um 
like the entire defense. There's a lot of talent on this defense, but it all collapsed in on itself yeah. last season. It was it was a little bit like the Browns, so I think for different reasons that everything was just going wrong at the same time. Looking ahead to this year, I think because of that, there's some optimistic. Um, there's some reasons for optimism and a lot of talent still on this roster. Like the defense, I think could get pretty good if these guys start to get back to where they're supposed to be. And then on the offense, you know, Burrow coming in has the potential to be a truly transformative player. The receiving group all of a sudden is actually pretty interesting. The question is how much will that offensive line be a complete Achilles heel for the team? That's, that's my concern right now. I am very optimistic for the future for our hometown Bengals. I'm optimistic about Burrow. Um, whether or not AJ Green is a part of, you know, one year transition for Burrow, or if he's there for the next three or four years and, and retires, either way, um, you know, I'm feeling pretty good there about the receivers with T. Higgins coming in with Tyler Boyd as a complimentary piece. I'm worried this year about the offensive line. I, Burrow did some nice things working in empty sets at LSU. LSU's offensive line, they may have won the Joe Moore Award. I don't remember. But they weren't that good by our grading. And um, they might have been right up there with Oregon. I can't remember if they won it or not. But I remember, and they had a few guys yeah. drafted and all LSU that stuff. They did not grade all that well for us. Burrow was unbelievable under pressure. Uh, they ran the ball well because they, teams couldn't stop the pass. I mean, all that stuff that we always talk about, it was pass game driven and QB driven. So Burrow can work an empty, and he's pretty good at you know handling pressure, but you can't bank on that. And he's not exactly Andy Dalton getting rid of the ball. Andy's like getting rid of it in 2.3 right. all the time, 2.4, which is as fast as any quarterback in the league. And he still was playing behind an offensive line that you know hindered this offense greatly over the last couple of years. Burrow's not that guy at the moment. He's not going to get the, rid of the ball that quickly. Um, Jonah Williams comes back at left tackle. He might be the best player on the team. Hasn't taken an NFL snap. Might be, I mean, the best offensive lineman. It's Michael Jordan, Billy Price, Trey Hopkins, Xavier Suofilo, and Bobby Hart. Nobody has played well at any point in their career among that group. Like Trey Hopkins has been pretty good at center compared to what they've had, but still ranked in the bottom third of the league among centers. I mean, that's where they are as an, as an offensive line. So I have concerns for this year. Plus, the lack of preseason reps, how much does that affect this team? I feel like the Bengals might be the team where you're sitting there in week seven, eight, or nine. Burrow starts to figure it out a little bit. The young guys start to figure it out a little bit, and they become like a scary-to-play second-half team with a ton of optimism for 2021. But I think their youth and the offensive line is going gonna, is gonna to kind of hold them down as far as all of 2020 goes. Yeah, I mean, they were so there were four offensive lines in the NFL last year that were historically bad, you know, amongst the worst offensive lines that we've seen since we've been grading over the past 15 years or so. The Bengals had one of the four, and the only thing that's going to clearly upgrade that unit is Jonah Williams coming back. And that's assuming he is the player that we thought he was as a draft prospect. You know, we've. Right. If he's a bust, it didn't get any better. And they're back to being one of the most historically inept offensive lines in the NFL that we've seen in the past 15 years. So they have to work out how they're going to overcome that. And, you know, as much as Joe Burrow did show a lot of good things working in the face of pressure and all those kinds of things, it, I think it's the toughest area for a young rookie quarterback to manage, right? To be... We know the quarterbacks are a huge part of the pressure that they face. They control 
the pressure. They control the pass rush essentially by getting rid of the ball and by manipulating the pocket. That's the hardest thing for them to get right out of the gate, right? That's the thing that takes a while to, to work through. So even if he was really good at that in college, expecting, expecting a rookie to not just like be good at playing quarterback, but also be good enough to offset the fact that your offensive line sucks. That's just, I mean, that's harsh. That's, that's asking too much of anybody. Like I, there's no, I don't know that any young quarterback can deal with that. And then you usually you know, part of the quarterback being able to manage the pass rush is having receivers who get open quickly. And AJ Green's not really that guy. He's not the guy who like gets open within the first, you know, right off the snap within the first couple yards and catches a million slants or quick outs or anything like that. You want to get the ball down the field more to AJ Green. T Higgins is kind of the same. T Higgins is not going to be a, a separation master, you know, as far as route running goes, he's the one that, you know, looks like a basketball player out there with incredible body control, catch radius and all that. Um, it, it would be down to Tyler Boyd. And then my guy, John Ross, right? Maybe if John Ross is the number four option, maybe if he's just the number four option and he's just gimmick player, run deep every now and again, maybe Mm. this is his year contract year. They didn't pick up his fifth year option. I mean, on paper, you have A.J. Green, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, Ross as a compliment, Auden Tate as a red zone contested catch dude. This could be a nice group. It could be a really nice group. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but they don't necessarily have that guy that's like, all right, this dude's going to get open quick and be Burrow's, you know, binky, so to speak, to protect him. Um, I, as I was going through all these rankings and stuff, man, the tight ends, dude. The tight ends around the league. Here's what I here's what I did when I was ranking tight ends. I took the Panthers, Patriots, Bengals, and Redskins. Washington, sorry, can't do that anymore. Mm-mm. I did that on radio the other day. Ooh. Instinctive. Ooh. The Washington Football Team. What? Oh, just I don't know. That, that was their team name until two weeks ago. Uh, Panthers, Patriots, Cincinnati, and Washington football team. And I ranked, I tied them all for 32nd at tight end. The Bengals are trotting out Drew Sample, 2019 second-round pick, who's kind of a pretty good run-blocking tight end, and that's about it. C.J. Azoma, those are their two tight ends, their top two guys, and a whole bunch of guys who haven't taken snaps. So they're going to have to rely on those receivers. The tight end group is is not good offensively. Um, And then for the Bengals fans that were upset about the backfield rankings, it was a couple, Sam. The, the Bengals ended up at like 22nd. I took, there was teams like 11 through 25 that I legitimately wanted to tie at like 15. And I think I just, sorry, Bengals. If, just, if you want to be 14th, you guys could be 14th. If you want to be 15th, you could be 15th. I think you ended up 22nd. Deal with it. Joe Mixon's pretty good. Giovanni Bernard's not anymore. I mean, that's it. That's where you are. But I think it could be a difficult offense to defend if all those receivers um, stay healthy. They're out there on the field, and the offensive line can give Burrow just a little bit of time to find them. Yeah. The other um, <clears throat> the other aspect of this offense that is a little bit concerning is, you know, Zach Taylor was one of the guys that got hired because he had a cup of coffee with Sean McVay back when that was the only reason you hired coaches, right? Anyone that's ever been in contact with Sean McVay, hire him as the head coach. This is how you win in today's NFL. And we said this time a year ago that, look, this was a really big year for that system, right? To show that you had a 2.0 version, to show that you had the next step because teams had started to shut it down and started to figure out how to slow it down. 
as the back end of last season happened. Um, and I think McVeigh moved on, right? McVeigh changed some of the things that were happening on that offense. They pivoted away from 11 personnel all the time, all the time, and nothing else. They went to more two tight end sets. Um, they did a few different things. The Bengals are still running 1.0, right? The Bengals led the NFL in 11 personnel last season by a distance. Um, they were right up there in terms of bunch for they, They're literally running the Sean McVay offense, right? The way it came out of the box. But that, like teams have figured that out, right? There needs to be the next firmware update needs to be downloaded for this system to be really effective. And your analogy and just never ends here. I don't know if, well, the point is. It's a good one. It's fine. It's good I one. don't know if Zach Taylor has access to like the download, right? Does he, does he have version 2.0? Has he, he can he get it? into the system. Can he get McVeigh to like email it over? But something needs to change because if he rolls in there with the I'll exact call, same system again. I'll call Zach Robinson okay. and see if we can throw a copy on a CD-ROM. And we'll get well, it over here. To... You flash drive now, Steve. Come on. Oh, whoa. Sorry. Not a CD-ROM? No. Well, the cloud. Yeah, upload it into the cloud. AWS. Oh, powered by AWS. We could definitely do that. We can mm-hmm. just throw it through Ultimate over there. Yes. So, anyway. <clears throat> My point is, there needs to be a no, new it's firmware a good, update. It's a good analogy. Here's, uh, here, I'm just going to view it broadly, right? I didn't look at year one of the Zach Taylor version of Sean McVay's offense and say, Despite all that talent, some really, really good things happened, and there's a bright future once they get more talented players. I didn't look at it and say, okay, that's really great. I mean, when you look at McVay taking over from 16 to 17 with the Rams, the 16 Rams offense was a disaster. Offensive line was terrible. Jared Goff was terrible as a rookie. Todd Gurley was terrible in his second year in the NFL. Everything was bad. And at the end of 2017, the Rams are making the playoffs, and it's like, wow, the offensive line looks good. Gurley's MVP candidate. Goff is actually a good quarterback, and they have some receiving talent. Like, all these things got better across the board. I don't even think you can look at a position group for the Bengals and say, well, at least the receivers are going to thrive in the system, or the offensive line's been protected, or the quarterback's got an easier time of it. So, um, yeah, it's a big year, I think, for the offensive system there. Uh, defensively, they clearly – I mean, they, they grabbed a whole bunch of former Vikings – in the secondary, Mackenzie Alexander, which was a really good deal, cheap. Trey Waynes, which was a more expensive deal uh, to play on the outside. They had DJ Reader on the interior, one of our highest highest uh, graded free agents. Uh, you know, in one of the few free agents that was still like in his mid twenties. So right. if you're going to invest long term, you have a you have a young guy. Uh, so I think they've replenished a little bit on the defensive line. They need some of the guys that were playing well previously to kind of to bounce back. I mean, to, that, to me, that's the biggest story for this year. It's William Jackson at corner and Carl Lawson up front. Those two guys who looked like steals, even though Jackson was first rounder and Lawson in the fourth, they looked like future stars in this league, not really putting it all together and Jackson regressing badly last year. Yeah, I mean, William Jackson's first season starting. So he, he got injured, right? Right out of the gate, torn pectoral or something. So missed his first season. But then the second season, like, you can make a case that that is the greatest single season we have seen from a cornerback statistically, again, in like the last 15 years, including above like 2009 Revis, 2006 Champ, all those great seasons you think of. Like Jackson, 2006 so he, champ gave up four catches on 973 targets. Sam. Yeah, no, um, legend. 
I don't know where that data set comes from, but it's not even in the we ballpark do. of what For it is. For those who don't know, we just get tweeted at like, Champ Bailey never gave up a catch, and he was targeted yeah, there's 9, like a stat line. times. There's like a stat line that perpetuates that Champ Bailey gave up, I think, five catches all season in that something 2006 crazy. season. And he actually gave up like 35 or 40 or something. Like it's not even, it's not even in like the scale of what it was. But anyway, so Alexander, or, uh, William Jackson gave up, 30-something percent of passes thrown his way or catches for a passer rating in the 30s. You know, yards per coverage snap was insane. Uh, receptions per coverage snap, targets. Per, like, I don't think he was the number one in any single one of those categories that we've ever seen. But, like, the, the five or six of them together, I think, were all top two, top three that we've ever seen, right? You can, I think you piece all of those data points together and I think you can genuinely make the case that that's the greatest statistical season we've seen. He limited Antonio Brown in two games to like a catch, right? Wasn't that like I mean, one for eight or one for nine yeah. or 0 for eight or whatever? It was, it was. nuts. So was like he, he looked at that point, that this is the next great young corner. Like this is the guy who's going to come in and become the next, um, the next, the, uh, you know, the next uh, Darrell Rivas. He's going to be that guy. And then it, like since he hasn't even, not only has he not hit those heights again, he hasn't even been in the same ballpark. He's completely changed what we've seen from him. He gets beaten regularly now. He's never come close to that level of performance. Like, they need him to get somewhere near that. He doesn't need to be Revis 2.0, but he needs to get, he needs to be a good number one. Otherwise, the Trey Waynes deal looks worse. Like, Trey Waynes is a capable starter if you have, like, a, as a number two. Yeah, He's right. not a guy who can hold up as a number one if your number one is playing terribly as well. Like, there's a knock-on effect to William Jackson playing nowhere near his potential that hurts everybody. Then you have Carl Lawson, who, just interesting breakdown if you have premium stats 2.0 and you go to the Carl Lawson page, you look at how he was used in his first few years. He was never a good run defender at Auburn. Uh, his first two years uh, in the NFL, he played like a little over 100 snaps against the run. He was pretty much just used as a designated pass rusher. His first year, 59 pressures on just 389 rushes. That's really good. High, it's a really high you know, pressure percentage, win percentage, good pass rush grade, had 10 sacks by our numbers. The next year, the sack totals decreased, but they still had a good pass rush grade. He was still getting after the quarterback, 25 pressures on 184 rushes. He was banged up. And then last year, he had to play the run a lot more, 161 snaps against the run. He was okay, but just didn't rush the passer at nearly as high of a level as he had previously. I think him getting back, he also dropped in the coverage 28 times, you know, as they were getting more creative. So um, I look at Lawson and Jackson. Hmm. Getting them back on track, I think, is more important than the additions of Trey Waynes, of Mackenzie Alexander, of DJ Reader, because they were supposed to be the young nucleus that you're building around. Yeah. They're, that's what they're supposed to be. Like the, the start of the, the, the brand new Bengals defense. Now, if they're back on track, as you mentioned, Trey Waynes is a nice complimentary piece. DJ readers an up and coming interior rusher to go with Carlos Dunlap and Geno Atkins and, uh, and Sam Hubbard. I mean, then it starts to come together. Um, so I think the, I think the Bengals might have a wide range of outcomes here too. Huge, but also like on the back end, right? Sean Williams, Jesse Bates, those guys have both shown really good play in the past, but last year they both kind of sucked. Like the entire yeah. defense just fell to pieces last season. There's so much talent. There's so much evidence of those guys being better than we saw last year. 
Darius Phillips was good early in really small sample size yeah. at one point. You know, so there's just there's a lot of what ifs there. Um, the linebacking core has been completely revamped. Uh, Jordan Evans, Jermaine Pratt. I mean, they were among the worst groups last year. They bring in Josh Bynes, who even if he just comes in and plays the run pretty well, he's capable there. And they drafted two players, Logan Wilson, Akeem Davis Gaither, uh, who I think will get every opportunity to contribute because their linebackers in Cincinnati have been have just been poor over the last few years. Uh, Nick Vigil moving on. I mean, it, it was it's just been bad in the middle of the defense the last few years. So that's why they invested heavily. Three draft picks, really. Marcus Bailey, a guy out of Purdue, who looked like at least more of a mid-round pick before you know having you know getting injured. So I would say linebacker is not the most important position on the team, but you don't want to be a disaster there as the Bengals have been in recent years. All right. So what are you looking for this year as far as like what's a successful year for the Bengals? And by the way, in the team previews that I did over at pff.com, the, there's a best bet section. It wasn't written by me. It was written by uh, Ben Brown. Uh, part of our R&D team. And his whole thing was just trying to give it, you know, here's where the team win total is. Here's the thing you might want to attack from a bet standpoint. He said the Bengals are one of the best bets to win, to make the playoffs. Now that wow. doesn't mean I saw, I saw old takes exposed. Take one of the phrases that we put out there, which was like the lions are the best bet to win the NFC North. Yeah. And I think he went like, Oh, I'm going to write that down. It's like, no, no, we're not saying they're going to win. We're saying you're going to put money, the most yeah. value in your bet, as opposed Correct. to the most likely thing to happen. Correct. So old takes, old takes exposed is going to be all up in Eric's mentions soon <laughs> when the, when the, when the lions don't win the NFC North, but our best bet for the Bengals was they're one of the better playoff shots because a lot of people are saying here's the team with the number one overall pick but for all the reasons we mentioned yeah players coming back from injury joe burrow maybe being really good the defense adding a whole bunch of talent the bengals might have that outside shot at say like the number seven seed in the playoffs yeah i mean i think the things working against them is this could be a really tough division and that offensive line i mean that's the thing to me that's just crippling I, i you can you can cover over a bad offensive line i but it usually takes a very good quarterback. Um, and I, there's usually a limit to how bad you can paper it over, right? Like if it's a complete cataclysm, you're, you're sunk. You can't. There's a certain level where if your line is that bad, you have no shot. And we've seen that in the past with various other teams. And that's usually with a quarterback that's better than Joe Burrow probably is going to be year one. So I think ultimately the offensive line probably caps this team. But it, like, if they get back to six wins and Joe Burrow looks like the real deal, I think that's a successful season for them. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, we want hope. We want optimism from our hometown Cincinnati Bengals. Um, not that we're biased. We just like to say, hey, we live in Cincinnati now. All right, let's move on. Cleveland Browns. Two more teams to get through, Sam. We're just flying right now. 50 any, minutes in. Is there any flying compared to the last time? Compared. Compared to. It's all relative. Uh, the Cleveland Browns. I've done a lot of Cleveland Browns radio and I keep saying every year there's a couple teams where I'm like, Hey, they might be better, but it might not show in the record because of what you just mentioned about the division with Ben Roethlisberger coming back with the Ravens as good as they are with the Bengals, at least being pesky and feisty this year versus last year. It's going to be a tough division, but the Browns are the team. I think historically, a lot of times you see a lot of big moves team gets a ton of hype and then they disappoint but sometimes they bounce back in year two sometimes the hype is just a year early I think the Browns are going to be a very good football team this year assuming they're not as disastrous as they were last year 
as last year from an execution standpoint offensively, right? Just ironing out that with the talent that they have, they should be much better. But will they actually win more than eight games, seven games in a tough division? I think they could be much better and actually have it not show up in the win column for this year. Yeah, I mean, I think because what did they win? They won six, six and ten last year, right? Um, I think because of that, you've got to be shooting for higher than that. Even if I get what you're oh, saying yeah, that mean, they could improve so. and not not improve with the win loss, but I think given the disparity between where they should have been and where they actually ended up, I think that's such a wide gap that even like if you bridge that gap even what you're saying shouldn't drag it all the way down to six wins. Like this is a team that should be looking at double digit wins and a couple of things will break their against them and, or, you know, the competition is tough. So they should be shooting at like eight instead of 10, but it should still be too bad in six. Um, like I, I do like pretty much everything they've done in terms of fixing what went wrong last season. The additions they brought in, I think are smart ones. Um, right down to the coaching change, you know, you bring in a coach with a proven system of maximizing the talents that you have available to you, in particular, the quarterback. I mean, it, everything in Cleveland stems back to that jersey, right? The jersey that's now like eight feet long with name bars of just the <laughs> right. who's who of sadness, you know, the disaster of quarterbacks that they've been searching for since they came back into existence in whatever that was, 99. 99. That, that is what frames everything the Browns do, right? And they desperately want Baker Mayfield to be the guy that stops that thing ticking. Baker Mayfield to be the quarterback that they can settle on for the next 10 years. And, so far, so so when you dump a guy like uh, like Freddie Kitchens, going the other way is is key, right? It's like that didn't work. We need a guy whose system is going to help the quarterback. Um, he might not be. I mean, he might be, but he might not be the best potential candidate overall. But he is going to bring a system with him that maximizes Baker Mayfield's chance to be good. And that is what this franchise is all about right now. So they bring in Stefanski. He comes with that system. You go hard after a couple of fixes that make that system work. You get a second tight end in um, Austin Hooper. You tell David and Joku to get get stuff. You're staying in Cleveland. There will be no trade. Um, we need two tight ends, not one. And you know you go hard in terms of pass protection as well. You get you overpay. I think a guy like Jack Conklin, but for a reason. You overpay yeah. to solve that problem. Um, you draft Jedrick Wills in the first round. That will still be a risk given rookie performances on the offensive line, but it should, in theory, upgrade a problem spot. So suddenly everything on this offense should now function, right? Everything is in, on the same page. And, you know, the only concern we've had, we've talked about this plenty, is Odell Beckham and Baker Mayfield never being on the same page throughout the course of the year and just never being able to coordinate on where they were supposed to be I think, you know, the the other change there is is within the coaching unit as well, right? It's not just Stefanski that's come on board. It's, you know, guys like Alex Van Pelt are there, you know, Zampezi. Changing the whole coaching structure around them, I think, will make a difference as well as just the two of them working on that. When you go to the offensive line, last year, I think the bigger concern was how Baker was – not trusting the offensive line. I, I think it was worse 
for for them it was almost worse that it was like here's Greg Robinson blocking protecting your blind side. Here's Chris Hubbard at right tackle who graded at 50. And I think just the names there scared Baker more than anything. That was what that's what I, that's what it felt like. He was just leaving clean pockets. He was just not trusting things. He was never perfect in that regard. We always talk about that. that. was one of his weaknesses in college, right? He bailed on some pockets. He's not, like we talked about Burrow not being that Andy Dalton get rid of the ball in 2.4 seconds guy. Baker's certainly not that guy mm-hmm. um, because uh, Mayfield, he's got a strong arm. He likes to take chances. He likes to stretch the ball uh, down the field, stretch the field a little bit. So he wants to hang in there a little bit longer. And he doesn't always take his first open read. Like, he's not perfect in that regard. But boy, was he bailing on those pockets, hopefully just having Conklin there uh, and, you know, having the rookie and Jedrick Wills, because they have that, that should help because they have a good interior with Joel Batonio being really good. JC Treader's really good. And then the questions at right guard, likely Wyatt Teller, is he the guy that, you know, it's easier to hide a Wyatt Teller as your starting right guard. If the other four positions are fine. Sure. Um, and when we're ranking offensive lines, we mentioned this in the O line podcast. If you're, if you go through the line, it's like good, good, good question mark. Good. That's one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. Right. So that's the type of potential they have in Cleveland. I think from a playmaker standpoint, for a two tight end heavy team, if they're basing out of 12 personnel, which is two tight ends and two receivers, having Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry combined with Austin Hooper and David Njoku, it's a pretty good, pretty good group. And then you have what I ranked as the best backfield in the NFL because we're ranking backfields and having Nick Chubb plus Kareem Hunt, that's – that's the best as far as, you know, one, two running backs in the NFL. So I think the talent is there for them to win games in a variety of ways with the run game, thrown to tight ends, thrown to receivers. There's one other thing I want to say about this whole thing, right? Stefanski did a great job with Minnesota last year. And again, the way I've been describing this is you, you have your quarterback drop back 30, 35, 40 times a game. But if you make... 10 of those or 15 of those dropbacks, foolproof, easy, however you want to break it down. Screen passes, bootlegs, just easier dropbacks. It takes a little bit off their plate. It gives you some of the gimmies so you're not worried about, you know, third, you go convert a third and eight over and over and over again. The Browns didn't really have those gimmies last year, right? And even when they tried to have them, <laughs> they were throwing interceptions, on tap passes and all that stuff, right? And incompletions. So I think that's what Stefanski brings with his offense. A few breathers for Baker. And then at some point, obviously, you need to have a really good quarterback who it's third and eight. It's like, hey, go play football, right? You got to go be the guy. But you don't need to be the guy on 40 plays in a given game. Maybe it's only 25. And I think that's what we might see differently in Cleveland is just a better all-around team effort offensively where there's enough talent to move the ball. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Look, I think, I don't think it's, it's possible to oversell the impact of the scheme change, right? They, they just didn't have a plan last season. Um, this season, whatever you say about Stefanski's offense and that system, it has a plan. It's a very defined system that asks very specific things and gives the quarterback a roadmap on every single play. Like, too much of last season, I think, was a big part of why he was bailing from all these pockets, was like there was no clear roadmap of what Mayfield was supposed to do on a given play, right? It was drop back, find the open guy. And right. if that's not there, 
wait until it is like make some stuff happen until it is open then then do it here it's you know the the vikings and kirk cousins were there's a ton of rollout plays you know it's shrinking the read it's it's minimizing what you're asking them to do and it's just right the fake will take care of half of this you just read a simple high low make the make the throw and you're good that's what you're going to be asking of baker mayfield now and if he that should help him, A, feel more comfortable in the pocket. B, it should help the accuracy because he doesn't have to deal with as much. He's not trying to ad-lib five different things as well as deliver an accurate pass. He's just rolling out and hitting a guy. I think that system has the potential to fix almost all of the ills that went wrong last season, but obviously it's still an unknown because the drop-off was so huge. Yeah, I, I forget the exact numbers, but Cousins was like, second in the league in yards off screens and I think second in yards off rollouts and it was about 500 yards right, right. so I mean it's like all right here's a just a chunk of free offense uh, I'm not saying it's going to be perfect and you know like for like but you just need some of that I think offensively so um, one other point on Baker we have two points we have five years of grading on him hmm. four of which have been really good uh, elite slash well above his peers that's three years in college in his rookie season. Last year was not great. Um, when you're evaluating for the future, we definitely, in our social media world, get caught up in the most recent thing we saw. And people definitely get caught up in quarterbacks either progress or regress. It's like you can only go two ways, right? So when you look at Baker versus Lamar Jackson, you're like, well, Lamar had some, you know, some issues as a rookie, if you admit those or not. And then he was awesome last year. Baker had his really good rookie season, and then he regressed. People automatically expect those two things to continue. However, the two-year body of work, Lamar versus Baker, much closer than people will admit because the most recent thing we saw was Lamar taking the next step, looking like an MVP candidate. If Baker Mayfield bounces back and ranks as a top-10 quarterback, as he did as a rookie, it shouldn't surprise anyone. That shouldn't be a surprise. Right. Um, if he continues and ranks around 20th or 21st or wherever he was last year, that also shouldn't be a surprise either. Like there's a, there's a wide range of outcomes for Baker, but it shouldn't be a surprise if he all of a sudden, you know, gets back on track because most of the data says, all right, you know, Baker's a pretty good quarterback here. I mean, not just should it not be a surprise, but I think if you were balancing those two things, it should be more likely that he bounces back. Yeah. How far he bounces back and how high he can go once he bounces back, I think is an open question. But if you were looking at the thing, if you're the totality of the evidence, if you're looking at the totality of the evidence on Baker Mayfield and projecting him forward, you would expect him to be dramatically better in 2020. Everything around him is better. And four out of the five years we have on him say he's better than that. So why wouldn't he get better? All right, let's go to the defensive side of the ball for the Browns. Uh, the fans went into the offseason saying we got to fix the offensive line, got to fix the linebacking core. The linebacking core got no love. I'm not sure it matters, though. I ranked them, I think, 31st. Like, they definitely could. They're only 31st because the Rams are trotting out zero people <laughs> at linebacker. I mean, it's the Rams' fault that the Browns don't have the worst linebacking core in the NFL. Um, the Browns are young, though. I mean, it depends on how much they have faith. They have Sione Takitaki and Mac, Mac Wilson, two guys from the 2019 class. Takitaki was okay in limited time. Mac Wilson, not great after a really nice, like, three plays during the preseason, but a really mm -hmm. nice preseason. Um, and then they drafted Jacob Phillips in the third round. Uh, defensive coordinator Joe Woods has hinted at 
using more safeties in and around the line of scrimmage. And they have the people. They've got like 15 safeties on the roster right now. Right. I mean, it's really like eight or nine. But um, they might just try to protect the linebacking core through their defensive backs, which I'm okay with. So I'm not terribly concerned about the linebackers. They have a pretty good defensive line. And they have potentially top eight or ten secondary in the NFL. And I think that is going to be the key for the Browns. I mean, for everybody. Stop the pass, pass the ball, whatever. But it's Denzel Ward and Greedy Williams, Grant Delpit, Carl Joseph, and a lot of those guys coming together in the secondary. Yeah, I mean, again, so this is, again, a case of, I think, the schematic change in the coaching and in what they're going to be doing has the potential to completely transform just the play of the people that are already there. Um, Greedy Williams... Second round pick, a guy we thought had first round talent, but you were, when you were projecting him as a prospect, it's like this is a man coverage specialist, right? In, in a zone system, he's not nearly as good, and yet he goes to a team who then proceeds to run a ton of zone. Um, Denzel Ward, I think, is also a better man cover corner than he is a zone corner, but suddenly I think this team is going to run a ton more man coverage. Now, there's some caveats to that, right? The first one is that even the most man coverage heavy teams in the NFL only run on like 55% of their snaps. So it's not like you can just say, hey, if you can't play zone, you're okay in a man system because half the time you're going to be playing zone. So there's still going to be some problems. Right. Um, the other thing is that, you know, we, there's still question marks there, right? That even though they're going to be pivoting to some of this, man coverage stuff that we still need to see the development, particularly from a guy like Greedy Williams. But Denzel Ward has some pretty spectacular coverage numbers over the past couple of years in terms of uh, catch rate given up. I think he's at like 45%. Um, Greedy Williams has the potential to be that secondary man cover corner. And then they added all these safeties, as you said. They've got Grant Delpit was their second round pick this year. They bring in Carl Joseph, who's a guy that's always graded better than he was given credit for, for some reason. I like Joseph, um, yep. Andrew Sendejo comes over from the Vikings, presumably because of the uh, Stefanski connection in terms of seeing how he can get things done. And then Sheldrick Redwine played pretty well as a, a rookie, a guy that in abstract terms you would think has earned more playing time, but suddenly finds a a much tougher route to that playing time, given all the guys that are suddenly ahead of him on the depth chart. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they definitely have the potential there. You know, we, it's really tough to project secondary play. Um, but I think they have the pieces. All you can do is put, you know, talented players back there and try to use their skill sets as best you can. So I think they've got a shot there uh, in the secondary. And then you take some of those safeties, you know, maybe it's a Carl, Carl Joseph has played best against the run versus in coverage. Um, at West Virginia, he played all over the place. Maybe that's not what he is. You know, maybe he's not this guy that's going to play free and strong and in the slot like he did, like he, like the skills that he showed at West Virginia. But um, he's got one of the better run defense grades over the last couple of years. Maybe he ends up becoming that dime linebacker type. Uh, Grant Delpit, he, he missed 38 tackles his last two years at LSU. But boy, he showed a ton of range, playmaking ability. Uh, love him in the second round. So there's some potential there. On the back I, end. I mean, I think Sendejo, Sendejo makes a lot of sense to me is that dime linebacker role. Like He's yeah. a guy that you can stick in the box. You're not going to sacrifice a ton against the run. He showed last season he's got some coverage versatility that I don't know people gave him credit for. That dude was legitimately asked to cover Michael Thomas in the slot by the, against the Saints in the playoffs, and it worked. Like They yeah. covered our, one of the best wide receivers in the NFL with a journeyman safety 
in, in, in as a slot corner, and he held up. Like, that's dome. nuts. That was genuinely one of the most absurd things that happened last year. And right? a huge credit to the guy. Like, Football's elite, weird sometimes. Elite slot weird. corners couldn't do that. And then Sandejo was asked to do that because the Vikings yep. ran out of cornerbacks, and he held up fine. So then we go to the defensive line. Miles Garrett is back, right? Yeah. Uh, back and rushing the passer. He had the highest pass rush grade before he decided to hit Mason Hel- uh, Rudolph in the head with a helmet last year. Uh, so Garrett looked like he was, he's just literally improved every single year. He is, he is the guy that has, you know, he's living up to his potential came in as being good. And then, you know, he's gotten to great, good to great, uh, is the story of his career, Sam. Last year, I think was finally, he'd finally become the player that he was, he'd, he'd become the player that the hype was, you know, that the hype said he was all the way along. You right. know, these guys come out and the number one overall pick type talents, the guys that look like the next phenom um, because of the athleticism, because of the, the track record, the hype is always way ahead of the production. But last sure. year was the year that Miles Garrett actually became the Miles Garrett of the hype machine. Um, he had the best PFF pass rushing grade in the NFL at the point he'd been Rudolph in the head. And he was looking like, a, like he was going to be right up there in terms of total pressures, in terms of the best pass rushers in football, assuming he is now that guy. And I, don't see a reason to believe he won't be going forward. I mean, the Browns have one of the top defensive players in the NFL, let alone pass rushers. And then it's just, it's solid complimentary pieces. Like Olivier Vernon was still, you know, he had 35 pressures and he's, you know, solid now at this point in his career. Larry Ogunjobi, Sheldon Richardson, and then they get Jordan Elliott in the third round, a guy that we had as a first round caliber player out of Missouri That's on the defensive interior. One. What's that? That's an exciting one. I mean, so they had this three guys that were first right. round players on our draft board between uh, Jedrick Wills, Grant Delpit, and Jordan Elliott. This was one of those exciting drafts where, you know, the PFF's projections, obviously, we do the draft stuff slightly differently. So we will disagree in significant areas sometimes in the evaluation of college players. And sometimes we're going to be wrong, sometimes we're going to be right. But it becomes really interesting those, where those differences are so pronounced. And this is one of them, I think, where the Browns snagged three players. And on our, if we were evaluating, we would say those three guys are all worth a first-round pick. Um, so if that, you know, if that ends up being true, if, if Delpit is a first-round talent at safety and Jordan Elliott is a first-round talent as an interior pass rusher, I, I, again, that has the ability to immediately kick things into a completely different direction. So, I mean, I think that's – I think the story of the Browns – it's pretty, it's pretty basic. Offense needs to bounce back. Bakers needs to bounce back. They need to show uh, a little bit of what they showed toward the tail end, or most of 2018, at least for Baker. But the offense, the second half of 2018 was awesome. And defensively, what's going to happen with that secondary? If they play up to their potential, I think the Browns are a dangerous team. Um, yeah. Defense is solid enough um, in the offense. They got all their hype from the previous year because of – Baker and Odell Beckham and the big names. Um, by the way, we didn't get we didn't talk about Nick Chubb or Kareem Hunt specifically, but Nick Chubb has run the ball at just like over four yards after contact per rush in his two years, and just just incredible what uh, Chubb has done. So I think they have the ability to win multiple ways. It's going to be the offense's progression and what happens with the secondary in Cleveland. Yeah, I was just running through their schedule right now and sort of doing the old mental win loss thing. 
Just trying you got to him count at up. Nine and seven. I did. I, so I had him with nine, nine wins, and that gave them that that split the series against Pittsburgh. Two losses against Baltimore, um, and and has them beating Tennessee. Let's say one of the Pittsburgh or Tennessee games goes against them. That, that's that's the eight wins we were talking about right at the start. Yeah, I could see an eight, eight or nine and seven type year for the Browns, but again, it could be. I could see ten. Because of the, you know, was it two year, two years? Many things went wrong last year, and so many of them started with Freddie as yeah. head coach that they should be able to at least stumble into eight to ten this I year. I mean, yeah, I, I think ten is where the talent level on this team rests, right? Assuming ten assumes a Baker Mayfield bouncing all the way back, and ten probably also assumes. Like the division isn't as brutal as it is. Like yeah. ten, I think in order for them to get to ten, they need one of the Ravens or the Steelers to be a lot less good than they're expected to be. All right, let's get to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Big part of the reason why you look at the AFC North and say, okay, this could be the toughest division is because Big Ben is back. Let's remind everybody what we've most recently seen from Big Ben. By our numbers, it hasn't been good. However, I don't think it matters that much. It, it doesn't make it doesn't make me sour on Pittsburgh. In 2018, Big Ben had the number 17 passing grade by our numbers. Uh, not great. His lowest grade in about eight years, and he threw for over 5,000 yards. He missed a, just an extremely high percentage of throws, but statistically, he was still fine. He, he completed 67%, threw for 34 touchdowns. It was one of those where these crazy raw stats did not match up with the grade, but he was thrown to Antonio Brown. Vance McDonald had that random year where he just decided to look incredible, right? Um, So that isn't necessarily there unless one of your favorite receiving cores in the NFL does all kind of hit their potential in Pittsburgh. So all that said, I think Big Ben, and then last year before the injury, Big Ben was bad in week one against New England. So the last year plus of play from Big Ben is him missing way more throws, putting the ball in harm's way, having a whole bunch of interception luck, essentially regressing a little bit. Even if that's the same Big Ben that they get this year, it's going to be so much better than what they got last year from Duck yeah. and from Mason Rudolph. And they got this young receiving core that you know could progress. Pittsburgh is going to be dangerous, more dangerous offensively at least. And we'll talk about the defense in a minute. But what are your thoughts on the Steelers and what we're looking at? Yeah, I mean, that part is true, that regardless of where Roethlisberger lands on the spectrum, he's better than what they had last year. Like, I was looking up something earlier. Percent, the third down passes, the percentage of them that were actually targeted beyond the first down marker, like how many passes were actually put in a position where if the guy catches it, it's immediately a first down. Duck Hodges was at 33%. Like, only a third of the passes he attempted on third down we're even beyond the sticks. Like, even had a shot to move the chains. Um, and that was the lowest in the NFL by like a mile. So, yeah, <laughs> there was a lot that was ugly last year without Roethlisberger there. Um, I mean, I think he, he is going to be, is going to determine what happens to this offense because A, they've reached the age now where that draft class is all getting old and busted. You know, Manning declined and then retired class of 04 you're saying all right our philip philip rivers oh god philip rivers (laughs) declined 
uh, is still going, but we'll see if he bounces back. And then Roethlisberger tore half his elbow you know, off the hinges and has to come back and see how he's going to be. So we've reached the age now where we don't know if those guys have just hit that wall. And, you know, Tom Brady's out there like breaking perception, still doing it at 43 or whatever. But, you know, those guys might be at the point where they're not going to go back to where they were anymore. Um, but by the way, it turns out we were, uh, we were misled by the pictures of him looking like Matt Patricia. Uh, I think we got Eddie, we got fat Eddie Lacy'd. Remember when like the training camp photo came of him from like yeah. the side and the jersey had billowed to yeah. the side and he looked like he was like 320 pounds. Ben looks slim. He's yeah. Ready. So Roethlisberger in from other angles apparently is now all slim and uh, ship shape. Uh, I think yeah. that the, the, the I'm like, not fooled because I don't I don't buy into social media stupid video, uh, pictures and stuff. I think like the hobo beard didn't help the the Matt didn't, Patricia didn't look, but he's evidently a lot thinner than he looked in that photograph. But that's going to be the key, right? Can Roethlisberger come back to wherever anything like his best play? Because he steps into a situation that I think is really good. I think that offensive line is still in really good shape. I like that receiving group. I, it, obviously, Antonio Brown isn't there anymore, but I think that receiving group is not a reason that Roethlisberger will be worse. I think Juju Smith-Schuster being able to move back inside more than he was last season, given the emergence of Deontay Johnson, is good. Um, James Washington emerging as a deep threat despite the ineptitude at quarterback last year is useful. Chase Claypool coming on to sort of push that as well. In theory, I like that as a trio. I think that's that that is a reason Roethlisberger can succeed, not a reason he'll, you know, fall short of his previous level. And then the backfield is still strong. You know, James Conner, they've got running backs that can that can get some joy as well. So it's really just what is Roethlisberger now? I'll add Eric Ebron to the mix as well. Uh, you yeah. know, he's he's become a solid receiving tight end. He's not mm-hmm. The first round pick or whatever that you know maybe people thought he's not the whatever you have 14 touchdowns or something whatever he had double digit touchdowns a couple yeah. years ago he's not that guy but um he's not as bad as he was early in his career at detroit either so um there are some guys to throw to and here's the thing about ben and his regression right he's one of my favorites uh, he's he's in that group of my favorites those aggressive guys who even if it's ugly and even if there's some turnover worthy plays in there and some misses they're going to be aggressive and do the opposite of what you said as far as Duck did, throwing the ball down the field and giving guys opportunities to make plays. So that's why you could have a Big Ben season a couple of years ago where he graded at 78. That's, that's good, not great. But they had, he had over 5,000 yards in the 34 touchdowns because right. he's still aggressive. He still had one of the highest percentages of positively graded throws in the NFL. He just missed way more than he had in previous years. So... I think offensively, they're going to be all right. Uh, offensive line-wise, they always seem to have that just solid across-the-board group. They do again. They add Stefan Wisniewski to come in and replace Ramon Foster at left guard. And across the board, Ali Villanueva, solid. Wisniewski, solid. Marquise Pouncey, middle hmm. of the pack, solid. David DeCastro, probably their best. Matt Filer has become solid. I mean, they're just pretty good across the board on the offensive line. So I expect yeah. the offense to be much better. Yeah, I, I mean, it has to be, right? They're, they're going from one of the worst quarterback situations in the NFL to wherever Roethlisberger lands. And wherever it is, it should be significantly better than the combination of Duck and, and Rudolph. So now, defensively, one of the best units in the league last year, even going through our preseason rankings, we're talking about a group. We ranked them first on the defensive line, which, again, we included 
their edge rushers. So we've took TJ Watt and Bud Dupree and threw right. them both into the defensive line bucket along with Cam Hayward. So yeah, that's that's a really good group. Stephon Tuitt coming back. That's the number one group in the league as far as depth goes. Number four secondary. Now that they added Minka to play safety, Joe Hayden. Um, Steven Nelson was quietly mm. one of the best free agent signings as far as just year one impact on the outside. And Mike Hilton has quietly been one of the best slot corners in the league the last couple of years. So this secondary is good. It felt like the Steelers have spent five or six years trying to have that good defense again. You know, you know, throwing a whole bunch of different edge rushers out there, drafting all sorts of guys. Um, the secondary is, you know, from the Sean Davises of the world and different, you know, Artie uh, Burns. Like, they've been throwing a lot at this defense. And last year, it felt like it finally came together. All that said, duplicating that performance, even with these high-ranking units, is going to be really difficult. Steelers, to me, are a team that could steal a march early in the season while everybody is getting up to speed given the COVID uh, protocols and the lack of practice time and the lack of integration and all this kind of stuff, right? Because there's almost no turnover. Like It's the same team as it was a year ago. The only thing happening on offense is Ben Roethlisberger is coming back and Chase Claypool is coming in. The only thing happening on defense is they're replacing – um, the snaps that uh, their nose tackle was his name. Why is it escaping me? Who's there? Javon Hargrave. They're replacing oh, Hargrave. Javon Hargrave snaps me too. Right with Stephon Tuitt. So again, like the guy coming back to take them is was in house anyway. Uh, so almost nothing is happening in terms of roster turnover. And th- again, it makes it sort of makes the Minka Fitzpatrick trade suddenly look more interesting as well, right? Because it's one of those ones where it's like, hey, our first round pick was this guy we traded for last year, right? Which usually sounds kind of silly, but now it actually becomes a case of accelerated development because now you don't have to worry about a first round rookie coming in and getting up to speed. You had this guy bedded in the system already. He's already up to speed. So you, you got whatever talent you were getting out of that early. And that for, that is more important this year than it's ever been before. So if, if what happened in 2011, the, the lockout happens this year, which is offenses counterintuitively perhaps hitting the ground running more than defenses, the Steelers' defense is in a really good spot to be able to hit the ground running because nothing changed. It's the same guys. They're an established unit. They've all been there for a while, and they were really good when they left off. It's a great point, Sam. I think, you know, continuity-wise, I think you could definitely point to offenses, the Chiefs or the Saints, and a lot of offenses were just the veteran quarterbacks coming back, and it's like, all right, you feel better about them given these situations. But, yeah, defensively, the Steelers have that as well for sure. Um it's it's a group where Minka came in and made a ton of plays at safety. We also like don't want – I don't games. want to buy – yeah, it was a handful of games. We don't want to buy too much into the hype because, you know, we've seen, we've seen you know, big-name media folks in the NFL being like, here's pre and post Minka Fitzpatrick in the it, – It was legitimately three games. Have you seen his breakdown? Yes, I've seen if it. You, if you take out the three-game stretch where he graded in the 90s, his PFF grade goes exactly where it was in Miami. Yeah, so that's the thing about safety play is your your high-end play is very dependent on the quarterbacks you play, the opportunities that you have. Uh, it's not to say that he won't be good or anything, but, like, you know, taper expectations a touch. Um, the pre-Minka 
quarterbacks that they played was Tom Brady in week one uh, with a Josh Gordon out there with like a supporting cast and Russell Wilson in week two, who was, you know, an MVP candidate. So uh, after that, the Steelers did not play very many good quarterbacks for the rest mm. of the year. Um, again, all that said, though, I think they're starting to, you know, it's a good secondary. It's a good pass rush. Um, I expect Devin Bush to probably take a step forward in year two in the, yes. on the interior. Huge. Um, and him and Vince, Vince Williams is just a specialist. That dude just gets after the quarterback as a pass rush, as a blitzer. Um, he's done that really well through the years. So they have, they have their unit in place. And they have their guys performing the roles that they need to be performing. They put them all into the right place. I'm sure I've told this story before on the pod, but I hope so. People know why Vince Williams is one of those players that I irrationally love. You know, everyone's got those guys that you you completely irrationally like as players. We right? need Not, to. We do need to have like a full podcast. You and I give like the all our guys team or whatever. But, and yeah, well, why. a lot of them were like. There's one thing to like a guy because you liked his play and you're sort of waiting for it to happen again. You know, the Jason yeah. Babbins of the world where I saw him play really amazingly like as a rookie and then spent the next decade waiting for him to break out. It finally came. It's like you with uh, um, Barcavius Mingo. Yeah. But, but Vince Williams I like for, complete, for reasons completely independent of his play on the field. Um, when we went on our training camp tour, we go to the Steelers, and the Steelers were one of the teams that were like full pads hitting constantly, more physical than almost any other team out there. Vince Williams is out there, full pads, helmet, and shorts. No pads below the belt, right? And I, when I practiced, that's how I practiced. I hated leg pads, hated them with a passion. You know, this like cornerbacks, when they force them to wear knee pads, there's almost like a, a strike going on because they hate yeah. those things. Yeah. That was me. I hated leg pads. So as soon as I saw Vince Williams out there with just full pads up on the top, helmet and shorts, I'm like, that is my guy. I will forever stand for Vince Williams because the dude practices in shorts and no leg pads. That's fair. I mean, that practices like you. I like it. So that's your guy, huh? Mm-hmm. Vince Williams. I told you, he's a specialist. He, uh, he gets after the quarterback pretty well as far as uh, how often they blitz him over 100 times in 2018, 56 times on only less than 400 snaps last year, had 19 pressures each of the last two years. Not a great coverage player, Sam, mm-hmm. but, you know, he's an animal because of the way he practices and the way he blitzes. So I, I think the Steelers are going to have a good defense. They're going to have a better offense, which I think raises the question, are we sleeping on the Steelers just because they you know, were a mediocre team last year because they didn't have a good quarterback? Yeah, I think they're probably where people think they should be. I think a lot of people are expecting them to be a very good team this year. Um, I, I think the, the Roethlisberger thing to me is more of a question mark than a lot of other people seem to be making it. Um, you know, everyone seems to be like, well, he's back now. He's recovered. He'll be great again. I think there's very real, real question marks about how good a quarterback he is, even if he's 100% after that injury. And God only knows whether he's going to be 100%. Like, they're, they're stressing that it wasn't Tommy John surgery. It was just everything right next to Tommy John. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. it, like it wasn't, it very, very much wasn't the one thing that everyone knows, like a buzzword for elbow gone for the rest of your life. But it's well, like no, but Tommy John's not even like a big. But Tommy John's not even like a big deal anymore. The recovery on it is Whatever. easy. It's just 
whatever. It's, it's I mean, not I think the, it's the one of those on things. Yeah, but it's one of those things though. That's like a you know, it's like a a, a danger watchword for anyone that's throwing anything, right? Tommy John surgery. They're very they relate to my elbow injuries. Sam. Yeah. They're very much stressing that it's not that, but it's three things to connect to it. <laughs> so it's probably not great. Honestly, that might be worse. That's what I'm saying. I, either way, it's probably not a good thing. So even if he's 100%, I don't know how good he is anymore. And the fact that he, I mean, whether he's 100%, I think is still an open question. Uh, generally, what, what happens with those things, though, your arm is going to come back as well as you rehab it. If you put the time and effort into rehabbing it properly, um, and now we're dealing with, we had an felt like months ago we had the big fat looking picture of big ben and people saying it doesn't work out you know he goes on the treadmill and then drinks a beer or whatever you know whatever the the stuff was so if he worked hard at his rehab he'll be okay throwing the ball if he and if he's motivated to have another one two three good years of his career whatever it is before he's going to retire he'll be okay he's not motivated he's gonna struggle again you know what makes him interesting so actually that entire class the 04 class of quarterbacks, as distinct from the Brady's, the Breeze, probably the Rodgers group as well, um, all three of those guys play and played in a style that took a beating. Yeah. Like Brady, the thing that defined Brady through his career is the guy got rid of the ball before anyone ever hit him. Um, Drew Brees, same thing, right? We saw last year his left tackle goes down. He's already amongst the fastest average time to throw guys in the nfl was like oh man my left tackle's down i'm gonna have to speed that up and for like a two-game stretch got the ball out of his hands in like 2.1 seconds it was like absurd nobody does that ever even for a small sample size so breeze and brady and rogers is always like you know taking throwing the ball away taking some sacks not not taking really ugly hits with the you know the odd exception he's been pretty good at avoiding those as well but rivers Manning and Roethlisberger have always kind of taken a beating back in the pocket. Roethlisberger in particular, you know, his defining sort of image is guys draped all over him as he's still trying to get rid of the ball. Right. That probably isn't great for like long-term longevity when you're approaching 40. Ben always had like a balance of that though, right? Because they'd have, they'd have a whole bunch of quick game and, you know, built-in screens and he'd have some of those, you know, quick outlet yeah, type I, stuff. I just mean, and then it's like third and forever. Right. It's like, all right, I'm just going to sit here and make a play. Bring the I just mean that like, it. you know, we talk about wear and tear on running backs, you know, yeah. in terms of wear and tear on quarterbacks, I would say those three have had more wear and tear on them than pretty much any other quarterback. Yeah. Either side, you know, in terms of like long lasting guys. So if you're looking for reasons why, Brady and Breeze are still getting things done like well into their 40s and guys that are several years younger are hitting the, the wall and sort of de- crumbling. That might be a reason, right? Roethlisberger might not be able to do what they did by now starting to take care of himself. Like the time you needed to take care of yourself was the first 10 years of your career when you were you know, getting buried by right. defensive linemen. So let's, let's just, it's a good point, Sam. Let's get into the Steelers for this season. I've done some Pittsburgh radio where they're like, Hey, we won eight games with duck and Mason. And it's like, well, Ben back, we're going to win like 13. Right. And I'm like, ah, you know. <laughs> I think the mistake you always get into is like, all right, I assume everything's the same from last right. year and then add this awesome piece. And we're going to be that much better. I think realistically the same answer we've had for other teams, AFC North's going to beat each other up a little bit. Like if the Steelers lost to the Bengals, a game and the Browns, like you wouldn't be that surprised. I don't think it's going to be a tough, a tough division. But Ben's going to make them way more competitive. 
the defense will probably regress just a little bit because they just had so many high-end plays and pressures and sacks and picks and all that stuff. They'll regress a little bit but still be really good. Where do you see the Steelers ending up here? So they're in the group of teams that I think are just below that, you know, elite four, I think that are probably going to be the, the class of the NFL, but like the next 10 are all really good and are all going to be beating up on each other to figure out who's in the playoffs. Yeah. So when you look at the Steelers schedule, you can probably immediately pencil in like six wing, wins. Like they're going to beat the Giants. They're going to beat the Bengals probably twice. They're going to beat the Jags. They're going to beat the Washington football team. Ah. And, uh, okay. you know, they, and, but they'll probably beat the Browns like once, at least once, maybe twice, right? But then you look at the rest of the teams, obviously twice against the Ravens. You've got Dallas, you've got Philadelphia, you've got Houston, you've got Tennessee, you've got Buffalo, Indianapolis, Denver as well could sneak into that. Like, you've got a lot of teams where that could go either way, you know, as a coin flip, depending on if they're as good as we think they all are, or if some of those teams end up being dramatically better or worse, like, I mean, this is, it's one of those schedules that they could be, they could land pretty much anywhere from that sort of, you know, eight wins up to however many you want to give them out of those games. I could definitely see this division being like the Ravens win 11 or 12, the Steelers win nine or 10 Browns are eight to 10 Bengals are six, seven. I think that's what I'll go with. Ravens, Steelers, Browns, Bengals, AFC North. There you, yeah, have, I mean, it. you have it. If you split the difference in those games, right, they end up with 11 wins. Like if you say they're going to win half those games that are more challenging than the gimmies, they end up as an 11-win team, which I think is not unreasonable. It's not. I think a lot of it's going to depend on that defense playing close to last year. And again, maybe the continuity works in their favor. How's that for science, by the way? There's six games we're going to give them. The rest of them could go either way. So let's just call it 50 50. <laughs> give them 11 wins. How we do it here at PFF? Can we, get some, can we get a data scientist in the house somewhere? Uh, data quick scientist dial in. anywhere? Dial them in and tell them to stop working on the model. I got it fixed. <laughs> we should test Sam's idiot. <laughs> I was going to say idiot proof model. We just call it the idiot model. Just the idiot model. Compare it to the real model. At the end of the year. Uh, what if it's better? I'm just going to hand over all these wins and split the rest. And <laughs> that's the <laughs> NFL. It feels 50-50. Everybody's going to win between seven and eight and a half. That's <laughs> what I got. Seven and a half to eight and a half wins for everybody. All right. That'll do it. AFC North is in the books and in under two and a half hours. Well done. The good thing is that we're doing this in like ranges. So people can't write down the number of wins we predict. And turns out that we're like way off how, what can mathematically be possible. Oh, this is the best way to do it. I got QB tiers. Oh, yeah, you could be QB 8 or you could be 22. Because I mean, there's nothing worse that. than that, right? Like you give all your win totals and then somebody adds them all up and realizes you're like they don't. 58 <laughs> wins above what you what, above 500. Right. Yeah, that happens. Nobody's, nobody's going to go pick every game the right way anyway. So anyway, good show, Sam. AFC North's in the books. We're going division by division. We'll have uh, we'll maybe have some more polling and all that stuff. See what the next division's going to be. Hmm. The fans picked AFC North. When I asked okay. Them. So, um, so there you have it. We'll be back on Monday with another division preview. Don't forget, we already did the AFC East. And if you just can't wait to get your team preview, I wrote all 32 of them with some help from Sam on the D line and the secondary. They're all at pff.com. Check out the team preview series in the NFL section, uh, team by team, position by position breakdown. 
Hope everybody enjoyed it. Have a good one, Sam. We'll be back on Monday. See you guys.